you know, it doesn't take more than about a week or two and your mind starts playing tricks on you in solitary confinement. You're absolutely right. I mean, there are certain existential questions, you know, like, how did I get here? You know, I loved my career. Why would I put it at risk? And what does this say about me? What does it say about my future? Welcome to Beyond Theory, a podcast powered by Meadows Behavioral Healthcare that brings you in-depth conversations with firsthand insights from the people on the front lines of mental health and addiction recovery. I'm David Condos, and today's guest is Meadows Senior Fellow, Kevin McCauley. He shares the journey he's traveled from the heights of the U.S. Navy to the depths of a prison cell and how that experience drives him to push for changing the justice system's punitive approach to addiction. So let's get out of the abstract and see how this applies in the real world. It's time to go beyond theory. Hello, I'm Dr. Kevin McCauley. I'm one of the senior fellows at The Meadows. Thank you, Kevin, for being with us today. It's so good to have you. My pleasure. Well, we'll launch right into kind of your story, introducing us to yourself as a person. I know you have an especially compelling journey you took to get here. So sure, we'll start with sure. that. I think my story is kind of unique because I, I really wasn't a drug user in high school or college or anything like that. I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to go into the Navy. So I was I, when I graduated from medical school, I joined the Navy and I became what's known as a flight surgeon. So I was the, the doctor who took care of the pilots at a oh. school squadron, uh, Marine Corps squadron. Specialized job. It was yeah. fun. It's yeah. a bit like being a small town doctor because you get to know everybody. You get to know the CEO. You get to know the most junior enlisted, and you make house calls. And so it's uh, it's part of the safety factor because you know the personal lives of all the air crew, and that actually makes it more able for the flight surgeon to pick up problems mm. should there be any. And then I had to have a surgery. I, I you can't take any medications and fly, so I had the surgery. And at the end of that surgery, they gave me a big bottle of Percocet. And so I'm, I'm actually the first patient that I know of who got addicted to opioids after a surgery. Now that's a very common entry into addiction. Yeah. That's a but, super highway. But this into was addiction. about how long ago? Oh, this was a good 24 years ago. So I think 1996, 97. So less common at that time. Yeah. And uh, this is sort of what's interesting about opioids is that they, they have a very different effect on different people. And in a very a minority of patients, there's such a powerful antidepressant effect from the opioid that it really gets its hooks in you. And it, and it kind of did. And it didn't happen all at once. But over a period of about six months, I started to become a, a kind of weekend user of opioids. And uh, that involved crossing of personal boundaries up to and including forging prescriptions and things like that. Because you were a doctor, you had that. Right. I did. Access. I had the, yeah. I had what's called a DEA form 20, 222 and you can order pretty much anything you want. And I knew that this was wrong. That was another gift I was given is that uh, from day one, I knew that this was not good. But what really shocked me was I couldn't stop. And I really had motivation to stop. I desperately wanted to stop. And it always seemed to, you know, just end up in a relapse. 
So finally, I called the Medical Board of California because they had what's known as a diversion program that you could kind of, you know, go to treatment and then be monitored and still keep your license. But because I was in the military, I really couldn't, you know, just go to the Betty Ford Center and take 30 days for my little opioid problem. That just wasn't going to work. And so no one really knew what to do with me. And so I kind of I tried hard to stay sober, but then I would relapse and then I'd stay sober a little bit longer and then I'd relapse. And during one of these relapses, they, I got caught. Hmm. And, and you, uh, were, you were still practicing medicine with the I, Navy this I whole was, time? I was, I was. And it wasn't necessarily that I was using every single day or strung out or anything like that, but I was impaired. Yeah. You know, I was petrified, quite frankly. And so the Navy, fortunately, they, they kind of knew precisely what to do with me in ways that the Medical Board of California didn't. So they just stuck me in Leavenworth for a year. So I was court-martialed and sentenced to a year of confinement. So just for people who don't know, so that's like a, a military prison? How, that's would, right. how would you describe it? So the nation's maximum security military prison is what's called the United States Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. At the time I went there, it was an old building that was built in 1911. Every brick mined and hauled and set by inmates. They called it the castle because it was this giant rotunda with all these sort of wings coming out of it. And it looked like it had bats flying around it. It was really pretty spooky. And over the hill, you could see the the federal prison at Leavenworth. So Leavenworth is sort of a, it's got four prisons in that town. Now today they have a much more modern facility and the castle has been torn down, but uh, it definitely makes an impression on you when you get there. And so you were sitting there in prison, probably a place right. you never expected that you would be. Yeah. Um, well, talk us through what was going through your head. Well, well what's, what's kind of interesting is I didn't go to Leavenworth first. I went to the Camp Pendleton Brig first, and I spent the first 90 days of my sentence in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And that, that definitely didn't help. Let's just yeah. put it that way. It's a shock to the system. Right, right. And I, I'm an advocate for removing you know that kind of confinement, especially for people who have mental illnesses. Yeah. Why were you put in that? Was that a, just a Most standard people protocol? are in a, a solitary confinement in the United States, not necessarily for disciplinary reasons. They're there for administrative reasons. Mm-hmm. So I was an officer and they didn't want me in the general population. It's a bit of a crisis of faith in the Marine Corps when an officer goes to the brig. Mm-hmm. So they just kind of wanted me away from everybody. So that was the reason that I so was in They didn't want the other people to know that you were there, basically. In, in a sense. It, it wasn't a secret, but it just it doesn't help. Uh, and I can understand that. I was not exactly helping the, you know, the military with its mission at that point. But, you know, it doesn't take more than about a week or two and your mind starts playing tricks on you in solitary confinement. Once that was over and I got to Leavenworth and I was more in a, a normal prison situation, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are certain existential questions, you know, like, how did I get here? You know, I loved my career. Why would I put it at risk? And what does this say about me? What does it say about my future? What I decided to do was try to learn everything that I could. 
about addiction, everything, to learn all the history, all the law, all the medicine, all the science, all of it. And this was the year 1997, and back then you could still learn everything that there was to know about addiction. It was still possible to do that. Today, it's not possible in one human lifetime to learn everything. Because there's so much more resources? Exactly. I mean, the research and the knowledge has just exploded over the last two decades. And so I just started to read. I started to order books and journal articles and... uh, I think the prison mailroom was a little concerned that I was getting all these books on drugs. (laughs) Maybe they thought I was going to make meth in my toilet or something like that. Um, But I just read and read and read. I mean, I I acted like your typical medical student. Let's see Mm -hmm. if I can't study my way out of this problem. Well, because that's how your life had been. That's what you're used to. That's all I was good at at that point. And as I read this stuff, it just became clear to me that this was extremely important information, far more important than just what it had to say about addiction and and what to do with people who had addiction. When you study addiction, you really start to untangle some of the secrets of how does free will work in the brain? You know, how do people make choices? How's that process constructed and how can it break down in a disease process? You know, at that time there was still holes and gaps in the research. There were, we couldn't really kind of link this to that and no one really sure saw how it all kind of fit together, but uh, that's changed. And now today we have a very coherent model of what makes people with addiction different, you know, what are the risk factors and and what are the factors that predict recovery? And that's interesting thinking about you were a doctor, you had gone through all the medical school and you apparently had never learned this before that. So that just wasn't at that time or even now, is that part of the training? I think it's increasingly becoming part of the training for a number of reasons. A, the science is there and, and from that science have come a number of treatments and they're in their work. Um, the opioid epidemic has also, you know, made people much more interested in the problem. And so, yeah, I think uh, the curriculum that a medical school could create around addiction is much greater today. Many are, but when I was a medical student, there was no set aside lectures on addiction or the neuroscience of addiction or how to how to speak to people with addiction or anything like that. So I think that now we understand a little bit more about which messages actually work when you're trying to prevent addiction in healthcare professionals. I imagine that this whole experience of this kind of fall from grace almost as it, as it right. were and being thrust into prison and, and all right. this I imagine that really changed the way you thought about criminalization of addiction right so right. I, like how, how did that unfold? yeah you know I, w- <laughs> I think all of this started in medical school when it was very clear that there was a certain way to treat patients who showed up at the hospital who were addicted to drugs. Mm. There was really kind of one treatment, which is to kick them out. Mm. And so very early on, the prejudice against patients with addiction was sort of modeled and I think absorbed, especially by me. So I'd love to tell you that I rebelled immediately at that (laughs) and I felt the injustice of it and felt a deep kinship with people who were truly struggling. And uh, no, uh, I, I uh, I can't claim that. But it quickly became clear to me as I was in in a carceral setting what the public health implications were for the people, you know, 
who are my peers yeah. uh, and for myself too. I was very concerned for myself. That now has grown into an entire area of public health to try to understand the effects of incarceration, not only on individuals, but also on communities, uh, which are damaged too when an individual is incarcerated. And that's quite fascinating. And now I think that that's really started just in the last year. Uh, that's getting more traction because now we've got all these you know, white kids right from the opioid are, crisis right, yeah. who have, you know, whose parents are just outraged yeah. that they're now a target yeah. Yeah. of a, a, essentially a for profit criminal justice system yeah. and uh, they're not going to have it. We didn't seem to worry too much when it was people on the fringes of mm-hmm. society or people of color. And that's a theme in, in, in the way diseases have evolved. Like the same was true for HIV. It was when people knew someone that they cared about, that they loved, who had HIV, that the world started to change its image a little bit of what the person with HIV looked like and what we wanted to do about it. And what I find interesting is now we seem to be stepping in those same footsteps, which is, which is definitely progress of a sort. Continuing with that criminalization right. uh, topic, how do you feel like the justice system and our culture should change the way they look at addiction, approach addiction? Well, I'm pleased that everyone is sort of thinking about the fact that when you incarcerate someone, that's not the end of it when they're done with their sentence, that there are lifelong problems that can emerge from that. For instance, solitary confinement, it's a very high rate of suicidality in people who mm-hmm. you know now have to live with that experience. I think the, the increasing awareness of that is, is critical. And I think it's going to change a lot of the way we uh, deal with these problems. You know, the fact that we're trying to divert people who have nonviolent drug charges out of the prison system entirely. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly applaud that. What concerns me is that we still have this fundamental belief that if the punishment is great enough or if the punishment is less severe but swift enough, that that will deter addictive behavior. And I think that one of the key diagnostic features of addiction is that as the addiction progresses, negative consequences don't seem to stop the pattern of use. They don't affect it at all. And so that's a a fundamental misunderstanding that I still see in very well-meaning criminologists uh, who believe that, okay, if we just adjust the punishment a little bit, then we should be able to deter drug use and people will be more successful in probation. I've never believed that punishment, however you want to shape it, is what motivates people to get sober. What gets people sober is high degrees of social support, opportunities at different life courses, and the ability to find something that's deeply personally meaningful to that individual and associate with peers who also believe the same thing. That's a concern. I think that it's going to take us a little longer because what's happening right now is now that it's unfashionable to just straight out punish people with addiction, we're starting to incorporate the punishment into the treatment. Hmm. And and I think that that's going to have very limited success. And when people realize that it's not working, then they're going to become more and more 
disenchanted and, and, and pessimistic about anybody's chances of, of getting sober. Whereas if you support the individual, recovery is very likely. Yeah. You know, people get sober all the time. Yeah. But that punishment approach just does not jive with the scientific way and, that you, that we understand addiction. And it's, yeah, it's not just a political position. Yeah. It's not just that I have an ax to grind. Yeah. Yes, that's what the data shows. Even criminologists will tell you that. I've spent the last two decades trying to explain carefully <laughs> to all kinds of audiences, and some of them quite hostile, <laughs> uh, that, that punishment may look like it's working. But what makes addiction so interesting is its difference from the normal population. In the normal population, the deterrence of the prison or the punishment mm-hmm. is 100% successful. <laughs> like everybody said, I'm not going to do that because I don't want this to happen. What happens in addiction is that the punishment works probably the majority of the time, but there are periods at which it starts breaking down and you cannot reliably count on the punishment to deter the behavior. The brain has entered a different state where it gives such value and such immediate value to drug use that it's not processing consequences at all. And that's, I think, an insight that still has to sort of seep in to the policymaking world. Yeah. And that's interesting. You talked about like the audiences that you're delivering this to right, and there's right. some, still some hostility. Like yeah. what, how do you describe the reaction that you get? It depends. So, I mean, the toughest, but really the best audiences for me are district attorney's offices. So they're, they're world weary. They're tired of, you know, trying this, that, or the other thing. Uh, they actually have the agenda of protecting the public and, and ensuring justice because I think this is important to just state people with addiction do bad things. They, they harm people. I, I certainly did. I'm not saying every person with addiction does that, but if you're in the game long enough, yeah, there are going to be some people who get burned along the process. So it's not that I, I don't respect the you know mandate uh, of the prosecutors trying though to explain that there are variations in intent in the criminal state of mind bent on doing bad things that's not really very well understood in our legal tradition it's much better understood in in england uh, where diminished capacity you know has quite a bit of tradition to it Um, but trying to separate the criminal act what lawyers call the actus reus from the criminal intent the mens rea is is not something that we necessarily are are very good at but i do think that this new neuroscience of addiction will point us in in a direction where we can more effectively do that and then of course deliver justice in a more accurate way other audiences would be, you know, I think the, the one that really matters to me are parents, families. I now have a better understanding of exactly what I put my family through, and I feel an obligation to make amends. And so uh, I kind of craft my lectures to specifically answer questions that routinely come up from families, that, that helps them understand what's going on and really feel some hope. Because I, I think overall that is the story of all of this neuroscience, that it's very hopeful that people do get better. And most people who stick with the recovery thing, uh, they eventually find it. Dr. Kevin McCauley is an author, speaker, and senior fellow with The Meadows based in Sedona, Arizona. And he'll join us again in the next episode as we continue our conversation on the neuroscience of addiction. You can find more about his work at drkevinmccauley.com. 
To check out more episodes of this podcast and find all kinds of other resources and tools from Meadows Behavioral Healthcare, visit beyondtheorypodcast.com. Finally, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of Beyond Theory. 